I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. Topic of our time together, verses 9 and 10 today, Feminine Modesty, will be splitting the teaching of Paul as it relates to women in the assembly into two parts because there's enough to talk about within uh, this topic which uh, is, should not necessarily be controversial, at least within the church, uh, but is most certainly controversial as we consider how the church touches the teachings of society today. We come to an issue today of great practical importance to the church. We speak of modesty, and as it relates to the text at hand, specifically to feminine modesty within the context of the assembly. Now, I'm tempted to say that this is a particular issue of importance in the church today, in contrast to other times in history within the scope of the Western church, but but that's only partially true. In fact, modesty both among men and among women is always an issue, and that because it strikes at the heart of the human condition. It's just that we at this particular time in history when the societal manifestations of immodesty, particularly among women and particularly as it relates to women's appearance, is not just socially acceptable, but almost at this point socially demanded. To this end, Paul's teaching strikes at the heart of the spirit of the society within which we live today. A society which, in the name of a philosophy called feminism, has deceived women into willingly yielding their honor, willingly degrading themselves, forfeiting those things which lead to contentment in their lives, and denying the very foundation of God's design for them. So we'll look at these things today, and we'll do so from the particular perspective of assembling of ourselves together, and from the particular perspective, as I mentioned, of feminine modesty. In doing so, we will not only learn some important things about feminine modesty, but we will likewise understand important things about everyone's deportment as we come together for worship. So our text today is verses 9 and 10, and they tell us this, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. This is This is it. This is the whole text that we're focusing in on today. But I'd like to take a moment to establish it within its broader context as we get started. And this is very important because you notice that in verse 9, it does not just say, women adorn yourselves in modesty. It says, in like manner. So we're approaching these verses in, in either comparison or in contrast, we would see in comparison, to something else. And the natural question is then, what is this in like manner unto? And within our context, Paul has just told us in verse 8, he said, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, we talked about this last week. This is what I preached on last week. I'm not going to rehash that sermon. It's online, of course, for you if you'd like to listen to it or watch it on YouTube. But men were exhorted and are exhorted to pray everywhere, to pray in all locations, to pray in all conditions, to pray at all opportunities. Within the assembly, there is to be a spirit of prayer, a constant determination to lift up our supplications and our our prayers and our intercessions and our giving of thanks in alignment with 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 and 2 unto God. A constant acknowledgement as we talked about last week as our, of our deep and our abiding need for God as reminded and as tapped into through our constant prayerfulness. And, and indeed as we considered this in our time last week in many ways the point here is that the assembly is coming together to express this a constant and abiding need for God. That as we, in every service that we have, lift our prayers up to God, we are most certainly expressing uh, to, to God those things, seeking uh, to, to, to touch the heart of God. We are receiving those things for which we ask. But we are also expressing our need. It is a humbling experience to pray properly. It is a humbling experience to come before our Lord and acknowledge His control, His sovereignty, His right over me. 
to be laying my rights down at his feet, submitting ourselves to our authority, uh, who is the Lord, and then to live contentedly within the role that he has given to us. And the same context extends into verses 9 and 10. I gave this brief summary of the idea of prayer as it's related in verses 1 through 8 of 1 Timothy 2 so that we can understand the in-like manner of verses 9 and 10. Just as we in the assembly, just as men are to submit themselves to their spiritual head, who is Christ, and to live contentedly within that which Christ has given... So too women are to submit themselves to their spiritual head, which is man, and to live contentedly within the role that it's been given unto her. So the Bible says men should pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, and in like manner, women ought to be adorned with good works. This is how she honors God. This is how she honors the role that God has given to her in the assembly, which we'll round out uh, next time we're together. So so, uh, keep in mind, we've got some more verses in 1 Timothy to get through after today before this whole thing is is tied up in a nice, uh, nice bow. Now, before we move on to this exhortation, I do briefly want to mention that this comparison between men praying in the assembly and women being adorned in good works does not imply, and again, we'll talk more about this next time, does not imply that women have no role of prayer in the assembly at all. And we find this precedent, this, the fact that women did pray in the assembly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We read this in verses 2 through 5. Paul writes to the church of Corinth. He says, Now I praise you, brethren, that ye, uh, uh, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonoreth his head. But every woman pray, that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head for that is even all one as if she were shaven. So we have in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's instruction unto the assembly as the, the church of Corinth regarding various points of order. This is the chapter where Paul instructs them about the Lord's table. A little bit farther in the chapter, we see the instruction as it relates to the Lord's table and the correction of the church as to how they were performing it. But well before uh, his correction as it related to the Lord's table, beginning in the chapter, Paul focuses on various traditions that were in the assembly. And uh, I say it that way intentionally. In verse 2, this is what we read. In verse 2, we see Paul say that he commends them, he praises them that they keep the ordinances that were delivered unto them. And that word ordinances there in chapter 11, verse 2, is the word that means traditions. Things put in place in a religious system in order, generally speaking, to guard underlying principles. And that's what a lot of what we do in the church, that's what, that's what a great deal of religion is. A great deal of religion, they are those things that are put in place within the assembly in order to guard deeper principles in order to maintain deeper principles. And within the context then of these ordinances, we see Paul talk about uh, uh, head coverings. We see Paul talk about um, uh, the, the idea of, of women being shaven or shorn, uh, of men having long hair. Uh, all of these things are, are spoken within the context of these things that Paul says are ordinances, are traditions in the body in order to guard deeper principles. And so he goes on to talk about these the female head coverings and he establishes the principles that the head of every man is Christ and that the head of the woman is the man and that the head of Christ is God. We have this picture thus of tiered authority. God the Father over all. Under the Father is the Son, Jesus Christ. Under Christ is man. Under man is woman. As always, take note that this is not speaking of worth this is not speaking of capability. This is, this is not a comment on women's humanity. It's not a, a comment on women's capacities. This is a statement of design, of delegated authority. Just because a person is on the lowest rung of authority in their job does not mean that they are inferior to the people that are above them. 
Just because a person is at the lowest rung of their job does not mean they're less capable than the people, the authorities that are above them. This is not about capability or inferiority or superiority. This is about design. What it does mean if a person is at the lowest rung of, of their job is that when their authority asks them to do something, they're obligated by their position to submit. Such is the case in God's design. And this is a doctrine which we call headship. God has made Christ the head over the man, and God has made man the head over the woman. Again, not a statement of superiority, a statement of design, a statement of authority. Now, again, we will talk significantly more about this in verses 11 through 15, which is coming up next time we are together. I don't want to get ahead of myself. We're not going to expound upon headship today. We'll do that next time uh, we're together. But notice something very important about what we just read here in 1 Corinthians 11. If you look beyond the head coverings for a moment, what we find is that within the assembly, the Bible speaks of women praying and women prophesying. Now, prophesying here, as we've talked about before, not explicitly telling the future, that foretelling role of the prophet, which was uh, a somewhat minor role, really, in, in prophecy throughout the Bible, but that role of Forthtelling the word of God, of, of, of speaking the word of God. Within the context of the assembly, women were both praying and testifying of the word of God. We know that this does not mean they were preaching or teaching men. We'll talk about that next week because women are told explicitly not to teach or to usurp authority over the man. Again, that will come up next time we're together. But there was a role for women in the assembly as it related to prayer and as it related to this word that they use, prophecy. Now, whether this was kind of how we do it here at Legacy Baptist Church, where on Tuesdays women break up from the men and the men pray together and the women pray together, or whether there were some other um, element of, of prayer where the women Uh, prayed in the assembly, adorned in in their submission, we don't fully know, culturally speaking, at the least. But let us not think that the comparison in 1 Timothy between men praying everywhere and women being adorned with good works implies that women had no role in prayer in the assembly. In fact, again, as I have regularly stated, it's not a contrast in 1 Timothy, between men praying and women being adorned in good works, it's actually a comparison. It doesn't say men pray everywhere, but women be adorned with good works. It says men pray everywhere and in like manner women be adorned in good works. It's a comparison, not a contrast. Paul is not contrasting something that men do with something different that women do. Paul is comparing one to another and specifically here comparing the spirit of humility with which the assembly goes to prayer with the adornment of humility with which a woman is intended to be within the assembly. The spirit of humility among women exhibited by their adornment of good works. So then this is what we're speaking about today. We're speaking about a principle of humility in the assembly. Men, the head of the woman, leaders in the assembly, express their humility in part by constantly reminding themselves that though they are leading the assembly, they are not the head of the assembly. Right? I may be the pastor, but that that's, places me as an under-shepherd. Oftentimes I'll use the word sheepdog. Right? Christ is the shepherd. I get to be the sheepdog to the, to the flock. Christ is the shepherd. And prayer helps us understand that humility as leaders in the church, in the same way women adorn themselves in an expression of their humility in the assembly. They adorn themselves with good works, and they adorn themselves by exhibiting feminine modesty. So let's walk through some of these principles together. We see first the general exhortation that women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel. The idea of adornment here is that of how a woman presents herself. It is her deportment. And the call that she would present herself in a thoughtful, in a seemly, and in an orderly way. Now it's interesting here, this word adorn in the Greek is actually the verb form of the word cosmos. 
The word cosmos is the word uh, you know, from which we get cosmos, and it speaks of the orderly arrangement of the created universe, right? The cosmos. Uh, the, when the Bible speaks uh, of the world, oftentimes when you find that word world in your King James Bible in the New Testament, it is that Greek word cosmos, the orderly arrangement of things. And this is that the, the verb form of that same word, cosmeo, to arrange or to put in order. So she is to put herself in order, is the idea here, in a manner that is modest, that is orderly, that is well arranged, that is seemly, that is appropriate. Women are to be arranged in a manner that is proper, that is befitting their created design, both as women more generally and specifically as women who are believers, who are in Christ. Now, in general usage in our churches today, the word modest has been tied to clothing. And specifically, it's been tied to women's clothing. But such a specific use of the word modest actually does do a disservice to the word. Those of you that have gone through our About Legacy course and have gotten to the point where we've talked about uh, what we wear in the assembly and and some of the the standards that we have and and some of the lines that we draw, uh, understand that I spend a good amount of time talking about the fact that modesty is not just a principle of clothing, nor is it just a principle for women. And we do a disservice if we're only ever focusing on what women wear and women only in the assembly as it relates to modesty. The word modest in English speaks broadly of not drawing attention to oneself, a problem among all humans, and a problem which goes well beyond just what we wear, and especially goes well beyond just what we wear when we're talking about men. Among women, adornment is a common way in which immodesty manifests itself. We'll talk about that more in our application. Among men, it's far more likely that men are going to exhibit immodest tendencies or immodest behaviors than it is that they're going to exhibit a modest adornment. Men are far more likely to draw attention to themselves by their actions than by their appearance. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. So the issue of modesty itself in the church is not necessarily a single-track issue of what we wear, nor is it certainly not a single-track issue of we're only talking to women here. It's not just what we wear. It's also how we act. May I use the word? It's our deportment. It's how we arrange ourselves. It's how we present ourselves in every facet. And furthermore, the Bible teaches here and in other cross-references that the primary focus of women's immodest arrangement of herself in the scriptures is actually not talking about things being revealing and tight, although that certainly applies, but as it relates to the scriptures, what we'll find is that as Paul wrote to Ephesus about this issue of women adorning themselves properly, and then we see it also spoken of in 1 Peter 3, the point of it is actually an expression of lavish wealth. That Paul and Peter were instructing women to not come into the body dressed lavishly, dressed to exhibit themselves in wealth and uh, uh, to be dressed like a peacock. Sort of an idea. To not be seeking to one-up the other women in the assembly through their lavishness and to draw attention to themselves and their wealth. We'll talk about that more in a moment. So Paul is going to elaborate on what it means that women are adorned in modest apparel and that primarily through two words here, shamefacedness and sobriety. Shamefacedness and sobriety. Now the idea of shamefacedness is quite literally having a sense of shame, but it also brings with it an idea of reverence or in honor. The word is used only one other time in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, and there it speaks of reverence specifically unto God. Now, translationally here, our King James Bible harkens back to an idea. The reason why they use that, that, that word shamefacedness here harkens back to an idea going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. 
We find this concept first introduced when Adam and Eve were in their state of innocence. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, the Bible says of Adam and Eve when they were in their state of innocence, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. They were in a state of innocence. They did not understand morality. They did not know good and evil. And so they were naked and were not ashamed. This is of a particular note of contrast when we come to the moment just after Adam and Eve sinned by partaking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, the Bible says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves aprons. So we find here that the moment, the, the, the first thing that happened when Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, when they understood good and evil, when they, they were brought out of innocence into a culpability as it related to morality, the first thing that changed was that they noticed their own nakedness, and they were ashamed of their nakedness, and so they sought to cover themselves, to cover the shame of their nakedness. So we would certainly understand that the call to adorn yourselves in orderly arrangement is a call, ladies, to cover yourselves. It is one of the most obvious marks of the godlessness of our society and of the confusion and the lack of discernment among Christian women and women in general today that so many women are comfortable revealing so much of their bodies. Even apart from what such deportment does to the minds of men in our societies, and we're not here to talk about uh, the differences between men and women. We'll talk about it a little bit in our application and, and, and how men think and all of that. Girls, I hope your fathers are teaching you those things. But apart from even that, the lack of shame among women in regard to the revelation of their own nakedness is a manifest declaration, and men as well, just more common among women, is a manifest declaration of the degree to which our society, even in our churches, has fallen utterly short of understanding sound doctrine and of regarding the character of God. Every day that you put on clothing, it is a reminder of the shame of sin. The first thing Adam and Eve did when they were brought to a knowledge of sin was to cover their shame, was to put clothing on. There's something to that. The very first manifestation of the shame of sin and separation from God in history was nakedness. And as a society becomes more comfortable with the revelation of nakedness, it reflects in no uncertain terms a defiance to the very essence of God's design and the very essence of our failings as mankind and our sinful nature. So a part of what it means for that women are arranged orderly, adorned modestly, is that they have a sense of shame. They're careful to cover their nakedness. We also see here the idea of sobriety, a word that reflects the exhortation upon young women in Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Paul, writing here that older women are to teach the younger... And he says this in 2 Timothy 2, 4 and 5. He says that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So we see here the idea that the elder women in the church are called to teach the younger women to be sober. And then in verse 5, we see that word discreet and chaste. Chastity and discretion, that would be that shamefacedness idea. But what about this idea of sobriety? A woman adorned in sobriety is a woman of self-restraint. As it relates to modesty, we speak of a woman who's not going out of her way to draw attention to herself, right? That's what modesty is. Ladies, as you talk about your deportment, as you think about your deportment, you're not just talking about where they're, uh, how tight, how short, how, where are the gaps, all of those things. We'll talk about those more. But the idea being, how am I deporting myself? Am I drawing attention to myself? Sobriety. A woman not going out of her way to be flamboyant, to be excessively distracting, 
showing in her a manner of a lack of sobriety, a lack of seriousness. And particularly here, again, remember, we are talking specifically about how it relates to the nature of the assembly. When we come together, men and women alike, when we come together, you do, you, you're not here to draw attention to yourself. That's not, what, that's not what this is about. That's not what coming together is about. Whether we're talking about how we're acting, whether we're talking about what we're wearing, whether we're talking about uh, uh, our deportment, the assembly is not about drawing attention to yourself. That's not what we're here to do. And this ought to be reflected in our deportment, that we are here to draw attention to God. Ladies, it ought to be reflected in your adornment. Church is a place of fellowship, but it isn't a social club. This is not a place for you to show off the newest wares. It's not a place for you to go out of your way to stand out. Now, you might stand out for one reason or another that's outside of your control. That's God's business. That's not yours. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about you stand out because of some, something that has happened to you or the way God has made you or whatever. That's, that's beyond your control. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about going out of your way to stand out, to draw attention to yourself, it reflects a lack of soundness of, uh, of sobriety, of self-control, of soundness of mind, a failure to understand the nature of the assembling of the saints, the purpose for our assembly. It's unbecoming of a woman professing godliness according to the scriptures. And as with so many things in life, the idea of feminine modesty is perhaps best described not simply by stating what it is, but by stating what it is not. And that's what we see as we continue. Paul says, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Paul describes four elements of a woman's adornment which would be incompatible with shamefacedness and sobriety. Broidered hair. Now, this uh, speaks of bra- the braiding of hair, but let me be a little bit more culturally specific here. It is likely that this is not simply speaking of a woman who braided her hair, but more likely speaking of a woman who wove jewels, who wove into her hair jewels and um, uh, uh, colors and all of those different things, again, to make herself very lavish and ornate. Then he speaks of gold, he speaks of pearls, he speaks of costly array, expensive clothing, expensive garments. Now, as with everything, it's important to understand the scope and the limitations of what is being said here. We understand that Paul is giving a principle. He's not explicitly saying that you can't have a braid in your hair. He's not explicitly saying that you can't wear gold or pearls or uh, that those things are explicitly wrong. You say, Pastor, how can you say that? He seems pretty clear here. Well, follow this with me. Follow, Follow where we're going with this. We know that Paul is talking about the manner of our adornment, right? We know that it's talking about not drawing attention to oneself in the assembly. And we see in verse 10 that these things which he mentions are mentions in contrast to something. That something being namely good works. So if I may put it this way, ladies, the question is not as much about the materials that you might use to draw attention to yourself, as much as it is, are you drawing attention to yourself? And what is it that is drawing the attention? Is it your appearance or is it your good works? Not as much about what you wear, but the manner in which you wear it, the manner in which you present yourself in the assembly. Modesty is a principle. And it's the principle of not drawing attention to yourself. And the point, ladies, is not that when a person looks at you in the assembly or when your name is spoken... It's, well, it is that when, when a person looks at you, when your name is spoken, what should manifest itself? It's, it should not be that you're a stylist dresser or that you're physically very attractive or that you're very wealthy. What should shine forth is your good works, your character. That should be the defining feature of you in the assembly. And anything that you might adorn yourself with that would distract people from the content of your character, that would magnify the physical at the expense of the spiritual, that is unseemly for the assembly. And this is why it's important to read these words not explicitly as a woman, thou shalt not braid your hair, thou shalt not wear gold, thou shalt not wear pearls, thou shalt not wear anything that costs you some measure of money. 
but rather you sh we should read these as examples of physical attributes within the context of that culture in Ephesus where Timothy finds himself at this time that would reflect a desire in the heart of a woman to elevate herself, her physical appearance, her personal wealth at the expense of her character. And as I say this, the reason why we need to be careful with a just-so interpretation of this, cannot a woman look just as lavish, draw just as much attention to herself by decking herself out in silver as in gold? Cannot a woman look just as lavish in a diamond or an emerald or a topaz or a ruby as she could in a pearl? If we take a just-so interpretation of this, you know what's going to happen in our assembly? Women are going to say, okay, I can't wear gold. I can't wear pearls. And, and, and the women that are going to take a just-so interpretation just find a way to get around the principle type idea is I'm just going to wear diamonds. That's not in the Bible. Diamonds aren't there. So I'm just going to do diamonds instead of pearls and I'm good, right? It's, it's not in the Bible. Do you see how if we take this and we make it a legal qualification rather than an exemplified principle, then all we're going to do is we're going to, to, to create a fence that people are just going to hop over and walk around. But if we understand the principle here, Broidered hair, meaning the thing that God has given you, your hair, and you uh, doing it in such a way as to make it uncommonly distracting. Costly array, putting on materials that are going to be uncommonly distracting or seek to divide you from the other ladies of the church by your economic status or your capacity to get stuff that they can't have. Pearls. The idea of, of adorning yourself in uh, extensive jewelry, again, as a way of separating yourself economically from the women around you, one-upping those that are around you, that idea is the idea that we're talking about here. We're not explicitly, legally saying, don't braid your hair, don't wear gold, don't wear pearls, don't wear costly array. If we try to make this a just-so or a legal prohibition, we open ourselves up to the danger of complying with an outward set of standards while completely missing the teaching of the principle that the women of this church actually need to abide by. So we can see here then perhaps how what matters is a spirit of modesty, of shamefacedness and sober adornment, not necessarily the just so of the four things mentioned here. Cannot a woman have a gold ring on her finger or a gold chain about her neck without offending the spirit of modesty with shamefacedness and sobriety? I believe she could. Cannot a woman have her hair nicely braided without drawing attention to herself at the expense of the spiritual? I believe she could. And I think that Paul's intent as it relates to the spirit of the issue is perhaps more clearly expressed uh, through Peter, actually, in 1 Peter chapter 3 than it is necessarily here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We read here of women uh, who are in the assembly. In 1 Peter 3, Peter is writing to women who might have unbelieving husbands and the manner in which women are to deport, deport themselves among their husbands in order that, that they might win their husbands to the word. And in 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 4, we read this. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they, may, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives. In other words, wives, you don't have to nag them. You can win them through your deportment. While they behold your chaste conversation... That word conversation meaning deportment, action, not just speech, coupled with fear. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. Notice how strongly the contrast is made in 1 Peter 3. That a woman's objective ought to be that she is adorned. That she would be, that if, if there's something ornate about her, that it would be her spirit of meekness and quietness. A meek and quiet spirit would be the adornment of her 
of, of her nature rather than adorning herself with the external lavishness of the plating of the hair or the wearing of the gold or the putting on of apparel. It doesn't mean women aren't supposed to wear clothes, right? It means that your adornment, the, your presentation of yourself, if when a person walks away from you, what ought to stick in their mind is your character, not the clothes you were wearing, not how stylish you are, not how, how uh, um, distracting or, or, or different you looked from a material perspective because of the way that you put yourself together. God wants godliness to be the defining characteristic of our lives. That when men and women interact with us, they walk away with an impression, not of our physical characteristics, not of our material wealth, but of our love for the Lord and our virtue. And that's the point, ladies. For you to adorn yourselves in a manner that accentuates the spirit of meekness and quietness about you. Don't adorn yourself to accentuate your physical attributes. Don't adorn yourself to accentuate your wealth or your class or your style. Adorn yourself with godliness. That's the breach of principle that Paul is warning about here, and particularly in the assembly. It's very unbecoming for a woman to seek to draw attention to herself because when you are drawing attention to yourself in the assembly, if the assembly is functioning properly, you're drawing attention away from God. And that's particularly unbecoming for a believing woman. So we're going to talk about four principles in application today. Principle number one, as we speak to women, adorn yourself with shamefacedness. This concept draws directly to the heart of the issue as it relates to that element of modesty that involves being properly clothed. We previously mentioned the reality that the covering of man's nakedness is the first and in some ways might, we might say, the most primal evidence of the shame of man's own sinfulness. That every person has a compulsion to cover themselves by nature and this is a testimony to the reality of the fact that every one of us understands we're a sinner. It is the, rea- it is the basis reality of, our, of the shame of our own sinfulness. But women, have you ever found it interesting just how much more emphasis is put on being covered for women than for men? And this for a couple of reasons. First, and this perhaps is the most natural as it relates to the church, um, the Bible speaks to women's apparel and it doesn't speak to men's. So we preach it to women because the Bible speaks to women on this regard. But even as it reflects the deeper principles of how men and women are made, we understand that there's an element of God's design by which we need women to understand this principle to a significant degree more than men. Men, ladies, are visual by nature. We are drawn and attracted by what we see. And we're broad brushing here, you know, there are different people. But in general, men are significantly more visual than women by nature, drawn and attracted by what we see. Women are more sensual in nature. And I don't mean that in a sinful term. What I mean is that they are drawn to the senses of feeling, of touch, what they feel emotionally, physically. To this end, some things are naturally going to be true. When a man wants to attract a woman, it's not nearly going to be as much through how he looks as it is through his accomplishments. A woman will ask, is this man going to take care of me? Am I going to feel safe? Do I feel secure? Do I feel loved? Do I feel wanted? I interact with women in the jail all the time. And they all have one thing in common when it comes to all the deadbeats that they hang around. It's that he makes me feel loved. He makes me feel wanted. Something that... 99 times out of 100, they didn't get from any other man in their, in their lives growing up. This is natural. So when a man wants to impress a woman, it might be feats of strength. It might be through his bank account. It might be through his accomplishments. This is significantly more common than just whether or not he has a chiseled frame. Much to the contrary... 
when we look in society about how women seek to attract men, it will be far more through the way she looks than her accomplishments. Because men are visual by nature. And as this is the case, that means that the temptation for men to be immodest will be significantly more a temptation rooted in our actions, men, than it will in our appearance. So immodesty among men will be far more obviously seen in us one-upping one another. The king of the hill type idea. Showing myself to be the best, the brightest, the strongest, the fastest, the most capable at the expense of all of the guys around me. And this is the struggle that men will have with immodesty more often than with women because what women are attracted to in general as it relates to the way God has designed us is a strong, capable, providing, stable, loving man. And so the man that dominates is the man that wins the girl because he shows himself to be the most capable of taking care of her. To the contrary, because men are visual in nature, the temptation for women as it relates to immodesty, drawing undue attention to themselves, will be far more a temptation rooted in her appearance than it will necessarily be in her actions. Why? Because men are visual in nature. So immodesty among women is far more likely to be seen by looking better than the women around you. More beautiful, more costly, more stylish. And this is the struggle that women will have with immodesty more than men will have with immodesty because of the way God has designed us. And likewise, what other women seem to be the standard of dominance, so the way that a woman would dominate the women around her as it relates to this would be through appearance rather than through action. Now again, I'm broad brushing, I'm stereotyping, but this is generally speaking design. This is design. And it is for this reason that when we talk about covering yourselves, Women are far more often emphasized than men. And it's a shame. This is not a, a, I'm not preaching this sermon on modesty as a broad brushing topic or else we'd be hitting men significantly more on your immodesties generally as it relates to actions. But do know men, it's there. And that is still immodesty. It's just a different type. But today, that's not what this sermon is about because that's not what the passage is about. The passage is about women adorning themselves in modesty. The direct context relates to how women reflect themselves in the assembly. And to this end, we speak to women. And of course, we first speak toward shamefacedness. Women, as it relates to this, you need to cover yourselves. For the sake of the men of the assembly, for the sake of your testimony, the testimony of the Lord within the assembly, you need to cover yourselves. And take note of this. Covering yourselves is not just clothing yourselves. Never ceases to amaze me how fashion designers can put so much material on a woman and simultaneously still have her so revealing. Cover yourselves is not simply about having material over you. It's about how you're deporting yourselves. Of course, there's all of the questions. How tight is it? You can have material over every part of your body, but if it reveals every element of your body, you're clothed, but you're not covered. Where does the material fall? Where are the gaps? Where are the symbols? Where are the writing? Where are the seams? Do you think it's just a coincidence that women, that writing on women's clothing is put where it's put? It's not a coincidence. I mean, these fashion designers are putting millions and millions and millions of dollars into designing this stuff. They don't do things at random, Right? All of this is a part of shamefacedness, and it's things, ladies, that you need to think about. Now, I'm going to be purposefully vague in that for any number of reasons. Number one, for a grace reason. Number two, because it's not my place nor my intention to lecture women on these things today. You women can get together and talk about this stuff, and, and that's fine. But we live in a society driven by modern feminism that is eager to do the exact opposite of women covering themselves. Whether or not they're putting clothing on or not. Women today decry what they call body shaming. The idea that society makes a woman feel pressure to have a certain body type or to look a certain way in order that she may display herself. And if she's not of a certain body type, then she should not be displaying herself. And of course, we all understand that 
any societal pressure upon a woman to look a certain way is wrong, but the solution has gone the wrong direction. The solution is not to inculcate in women a liberty where they all are willing to throw out the shame of their, of, of their nakedness. But the solution is rather to bring the shame of, of one's nakedness, a shamefacedness, back into the sensibility of all women, even if they have societally acceptable body types. And for believing ladies among us on the basis of the clarity of the text, this should not even be controversial, what I'm saying. It really shouldn't. Women, when you come into the assembly, you are not here to draw attention to yourself. We're here for God. You're not here to elevate yourself. We're here to elevate God. So cover yourself. And by the way, as it relates to attracting a husband, which is a big part of the reason why women are wearing what they're wearing today, feminism has changed the supposed... um, Intentions, but we'll talk about that more in a minute. As it relates to finding a husband, any husband in this assembly or anywhere else that's worth his salt, any, any man who's worth marrying has already determined that Proverbs 31.30 is going to be a significant, a significant part of his process of, of discernment. Proverbs 31.30, favors deceitful, And beauty is vain, but a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. The right kind of man, the man of God, doesn't mean he's not going to care whether or not you're a beautiful woman. But that is certainly not going to be the hinge upon which his determination swing. Because any man of God knows that what he's looking for is a woman that fears the Lord. You want to attract that kind of man? a man that fears the Lord, then you want to be a woman that fears the Lord. Then you want your deportment to be that of godliness. And if that chases some guy away, good. It did its job. You don't want that guy. Find the guy that is attracted to you because your deportment is that of godliness. If you want a godly man, be a godly woman. That will draw him. Same same the other way around. Men, you want a godly woman? Be a godly man. That's, that, that, that will draw her. Second point. Adorn yourselves with sobriety. The first point focuses upon covering yourselves in the assembly. The second point focuses upon your deportment. It is here that we speak about things going beyond just covering. And again, these things apply both to men and women. Here we speak of an appearance which is loud, flamboyant, distracting, And I want to speak to this point very carefully. So first I'm going to make the point and then I'm going to clarify the point. So bear with me through it. There's nothing sober or shamefacedness about coming into the assembly looking flamboyant. Wild hair. Crazy colored hair. Piercings in culturally abnormal places. Visible markings that are distracting all over your body. Excessive amounts of makeup that look excessively unnatural. uh, uh, these things. Now, again, as I say this, I do this under the umbrella of everything that we have talked about as it relates to the law and grace, our series just before this. Marking of your skin, putting holes in your body, changing the color of your hair, putting makeup on your face. These are things that that, that are are things of this world that are being done to a a part of this world. Our flesh, our body, our bones, it's all going to dust to dust, ashes to ashes, right? The idea that I am putting, uh, that I put a, a, a marker on my skin, this is, this is not in and of itself sinful. The idea that my hair has a, a different color than the color that got, not my hair, I don't have any, but you know what I mean. The, the idea that a person has a different color hair than, than that which comes as it grows is not intrinsically sinful. Okay? The body is a material and temporal thing, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But we ask the question, to what degree can a person do all of those things while simultaneously maintaining a testimony of shamefacedness and sobriety in the assembly? And ladies, this is a question that you need to wrestle with. 
I'm not answering it for you today, but this is a question that ought, you ought to wrestle with. Th- th- this is something that ought to be a part of the filter when you look at the mirror in the morning. A part of your filter ought to be the words shamefacedness and sobriety. And if your deportment, whatever that means, doesn't pass through that filter, then something ought to change. The question comes down to why are you doing what you are doing? And even more, what is the inevitable result? You say, well, I, I did it with all the right intentions. Yes, but did it, did it yield the right results? Is what you intended by what you did, by what you put on, by, by how you look, whatever, is that the result that bore out or, or did you become a distraction? Did you bear out something that you didn't intend? Okay, well, that's fine. You didn't intend it. Change it. Where you draw these lines is between you and God. But the key is this. When you put yourself together every day and you consider yourself in the light of God's testimony that you are a representation of Jesus Christ, in the, particularly in the assembly, but, but everywhere you go as a believer, the thing which shines out of you should not be the exterior, but as becometh women of godliness, your good works. Is this the way you, ar- you arrange yourself? Does it conform to the standard of drawing attention to the hidden man of the heart, not to the plating of of the hair or the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel? Again, I'm not going into specifics here because specifics aren't the point. There are elements of the outward adornment which are not only appropriate but becoming. My wife has often remarked about how a simple necklace on her can can make her, her appearance feel complete, and I agree. Might be well understood that makeup to cover something that is distracting can be appropriate, right? So we're not talking, again, about a legal standard of of you can't wear this, you can't do that, or you can't have this, you can't have that. These are examples, not guidelines. Let each woman be persuaded in her own conscience, and of course, young ladies underneath the authority of your father. If you're interested in some of those things, of course, the ladies in our midst, you get together, you talk about those things, and you come to conclusions, and that's good. But all of this falls under the umbrella of sobriety in the assembly. Number three, adorn yourselves with humility. As we discussed already, the operative issue as it relates to these concepts, broidered hair, gold, pearls, expensive clothing, the heart of the objective in the assembly is humility. It's not a place for you to come and to compare yourselves with one another and to judge one another on clothing or on jewelry or on appearance, to display your lavish attire, to exhibit your expensive ornaments, to gossip about the latest fashions. This is carnality. Now again, we approach this in grace, not in legality, for a woman to see the attire of another and say, hey, that's a lovely fill-in-the-blank. Where did you get that? This falls with, to, you know, to appreciate a pair of shoes, to ask another where they got a particular piece of clothing. This, this falls fully within the scope of grace and liberty as it relates to the concept of fellowship in the assembly, right? We're friends. We're, we're, we're going to talk in the same manner that guys talking about the baseball game or guys talking shop within the scope of our grace and liberty is fully appropriate because we come together and we're friends and we are enjoying each other's company. And so we're talking. But when the focus is drawn away from the Lord in a meaningful way, and particularly when it is placed upon attributes that would lead to judgment, to comparisons, to pride, to elevating one against another, to the forming of cliques, uh, to, to the, the excluding of certain people, at the, uh, to, uh, to, to, to living at the expense of others, at that point you've left grace. And you're, you're walking in a spirit that is incompatible with the assembly. Final point about feminism. Now, life is too short and our meetings are too few for me to spend all my time combating every evil philosophy that crops up in the world. It's far more worth our time to speak what God's word says and to allow error to be crowded out by our love and our loyalty to the truth. But I want to spend a few moments speaking of the movement that today is called feminism. We're actually, depending on who you talk to, either in third or fourth wave feminism at this point. Feminism is actually dying at the hands of intersectionality at this point because how can you have feminism if men can be women and women can be men and it doesn't make a difference anyway? Then you can't have feminism anymore, right? So, so feminism is dying under the weight of, of intersectional 
um, intersectionality, but let's talk about it for what it still attempts to be today. We distinguish third-wave feminism from what we typically call first- and second-wave feminism. To give you a brief history of this, first-wave feminism was manifest from the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s. That was when women were seeking for the right to vote, to be educated, to own property, to be equal under contract law, all of those sorts of things. That's considered first-wave feminism. Then you had second-wave feminism. That would be the feminism of the mid-1900s uh, through, you know, like 1950s, 60s to the 80s, 90s. And second wave feminism was all about sexual liberation, was all about the idea of women becoming unrestrained from the idea of shamefacedness and sobriety of appearance. It was unshackled. It was called women's liberation, the women's lib movement. This is when uh, colleges started teaching, uh, giving entire degrees on women's liberation and women's theories and, and, and such, and we're, we're, we're inculcating society with these ideas of, of rejecting shamefacedness and sobriety. Uh, then we come to third wave feminism, manifest from the 1990s through uh, kind of now, of course, depending on where you draw the lines with intersectional feminism and such. But third wave feminism has been dominating the discussion of much of the last decade. And this is the feminism that seeks to tear down every last vestige of distinction between men and women, refusing to admit even the idea that men and women can be different but equal, and seeks not to bring men and women into parity, but rather to bring about a female-dominated society. And I speak particularly about third-wave feminism today, although what I'm going to say is applicable enough to first and second as well. Feminism is a deeply unbiblical philosophy which is an affront to every aspect of God's design for men and for women. An ideology designed not simply to free women from the constraints of society or to free women from the constraints of men, but to free women from the design of God. Feminism labels itself as a philosophy of freedom, and it is, in the very same way that Satan labeled eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as freedom. Satan told the woman that she would be as a god, knowing good and evil. And indeed, he was right. Adam and Eve were freed from their innocence, freed from the simplicity of their submission to God, and were instead bound by the consequences and the burdens of sin from generation to generation. Feminism teaches that God's design for women is bondage, in the same way that the world teaches that God's design for Christians is bondage. But anyone who has ever lived within the bounds of God's design knows for certain that the world is deceiving them and that what the world calls bondage is in truth the utmost liberty in Christ. Women, you were not created to be the head. You were not created to, to be in authority. Man was created by God to be the head. This is not a statement, as I've said many times, we'll say again many times next, week, uh, next time we're together, this is not a statement of inferiority. It's not a statement of incapacity. It doesn't mean you're incapable of leading. It doesn't mean you are incapable or, or that you are inferior to man. It, in fact, if you look at history, Christianity is the single most liberating belief system women have ever experienced. Christianity is the first and only religious system which, at its very core, sees men and women as 100% equal in worth and in value in the eyes of God. Throughout most of history, women have been possessions to be bartered and sold and traded and given away. Christianity elevated women when Paul writes, there is neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, but we are all one in Christ. But that doesn't mean, ladies, that you were created to be the same as men. God has given men the responsibility of headship and the accountability of headship. God has made men and women differently, designed them for different purposes, intended to have them work together to create a functioning society. And not only is feminism anti-God, but feminism is also anti-woman. Feminism is a web of lies that tells girls that if they will only liberate themselves from societal expectations and a patriarchal culture, that they will be happy and fulfilled. That the reason why they don't feel fulfilled is because men are holding them back, rather than for the true reason, because they're not living within God's design. 
So feminism is lying to our women, deceiving them in regard to what matters, what is important, how to achieve the goal of being loved and respected among men, among peers, among strangers. Women, you have worth because you're made in the image of God. Your worth grows as you submit yourself to God's design and you will find the pinnacle of your personal satisfaction in alignment with God's design. Don't allow society and culture to strip that joy from you in their lies about liberation. Don't allow the lies of feminism, female empowerment, of a misguided view of independence and autonomy to strip you from the glory of living in alignment with the way God has created you. Women are compelled, to, compelled today to live liberated from society's expectations of morality, decency, propriety. And in the name of liberation, what has happened to women? They've been objectified like never before. Men aren't complaining when women are living these liberated lives because they get to objectify women in a way that women used to not let them objectify them. Now women are allowing men to objectify them in the name of women's liberation. It's not liberation. In the name of liberation, women are stepping outside of the God-given protections that have been given to them in this life and made themselves prey to those who would exploit them. Feminism has not liberated women. It has lied its way into women's minds, making them think that God's design is holding them back rather than understanding that God's design is what empowers them to live free, to live outside of the bounds of male objectification, turning them into humans with dignity that we are to honor and respect. This is a Christian principle. Honoring, respecting women because they're, they have dignity, not treating them as just a piece of meat to be objectified. Women are being compelled to deny everything that God has designed them to be and everything that God has designed them to love in deference to lies. And it's leaving women lonely, unhappy, and very, very angry. And this is an outgrowth of cultural Marxism, an attempt to manipulate women to destroy the fabric of a stable society that's rooted in functional families. Because if you can destroy the family, then what steps into its place is power arrangements, authorities, governments, individuals, the people with the money. And it is also a shake of society's collective fist at God and his design. In many ways, I, I didn't even need to tell you this because anyone who studies the word of God and believes it is related to women, their God-designed role in the family and in society and in the church will immediately recognize that there is a deep incompatibility between feminism and between the word of God. But lest the word itself and the prevailing philosophies of feminism find a foothold in the hearts and minds of our women as it has in many churches today, it must be said without exception that the ideologies and the philosophies of feminism today are abhorrent to the word of God, are antithetical to the character of God, and are not just contrary to sound doctrine, but are corrosive to sound doctrine. The object of our context today was to compare the manner in which men reflect humility and submission in the assembly through prayer, that in like manner women would adorn themselves with shamefacedness and sobriety in or in shamefacedness and sobriety with good works. This drives down to the very root and essence of the function of the assembling together, that we are here not to distract, not to draw attention to ourselves, not to take power for ourselves, men, not to take attention to ourselves, women, but to draw attention to God and our need for God, that we might grow in grace, serve one another, magnify the Lord, Bless one another. Next week, next time we're together, won't be next week, but next time we're together, we'll consider together the role of women in the assembly a little bit more and establish careful lines of conduct and philosophy. But for this week, the question is, how are you doing? The focus was upon our ladies, but as it relates to adorning oneself in godliness, the call goes out to men and women alike. Has the irreverent culture within which we live 
uh, stripped from us the intent of the assembly that we would keep our attention on God and not on one another? Have we brought carnality into the assembly in word or in deed, in adornment, in deportment? Do we come with the objective of godly worship or do we come with some ulterior objective in mind? Let's allow the Spirit of God to explore our hearts in these ways to bring us to careful conclusions that we as an assembly might always be a place where we come together in safety and in harmony and in unity to please and to worship and to magnify the Lord together. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for God's people and I ask that the words that I spoke today would not be misconstrued, misunderstood, but also that they would not fall on deaf ears. I pray particularly for our young ladies. I pray that they would understand the balance of living a grace-filled life adorned in modesty with shamefacedness and sobriety that they might be adorned in good works. That our young ladies would have the character that their good works might shine forth. That we would not become imbalanced in this and not seek to, to strip that which needs not be, 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 be done away with while simultaneously seeking to find appropriate adornments and deportments within our assembly. I pray that we would approach this topic in our own hearts with humility before you. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.